Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danny's Diary, a podcast powered by Singing News Magazine. I'm your host, Danny Jones, and you can find me in the pages of Singing News Magazine every month. My guest today, well, it's safe to say that this man knows Southern gospel music. I'm referring to Nick Bruno, legendary performer, producer, arranger, just around, uh, uh, just an all-around good gospel music person. Welcome, Mr. Bruno. We're glad you're here today. Thank you very much. And, I need to make you my manager. Well, yeah. we can talk about that afterwards, <laughs> afterwards. Now, the first thing I, I do have to comment on, you know, baseball season has just finished a few weeks ago. And uh, I always had a very high impression of Nick Bruno until I saw the hat today. <laughs> He's wearing a New York Yankees hat. Scott Brand of Gold City would be very happy with that. Ricky Carden of the Down East Boys would be very happy with that. But for a Boston Red Sox fan like myself, that's, that's not the prettiest hat I've ever seen. But we'll forgive you. Well, I appreciate that. You know, uh, this season, you know the difference between a New York Yankees hot dog and a Red Sox hot dog. All right, I'll 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 bite on that. You could still buy a Yankees hot dog after the season ended. Okay, well, we're going to move right along <laughs> right now. All right, uh, you know, one of the... Uh, one of the things I like to do as I travel across the country is I will take uh, recordings, both new and old, and I've just loaded them up into my uh, in my car, whether on CD or my phone or whatever. And the other day, I was listening to an album recorded in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, the album was recorded by the Kingsmans called Chattanooga Live, and of course, that is one of the most famous recordings in the history of Southern gospel music. And the very first thing that you hear after the introduction by Mr. and Mrs. J. Basil Mull <laughs> are the piano notes from this man, Nick Bruno. Nick, take us back to that night when such songs as Traveling Home, We Do Not Die, Old Zip of Zion. Tell us a little bit about that night when those songs were recorded. Well, Danny, I'll tell you, you know, the... Um the energy in that room was uh, almost tangible. You could you could feel the excitement. The crowd was buzzing, you know. And um, the the to me, now I know there were there were some really good songs on there, but to me, the highlight of the record is the old ship of Zion. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and anyone who's heard that knows there's, there's not even any instruments on it. Right. It's just all the fellows singing a cappella. But boy, that. Uh, it gave me goosebumps, you know. That was a very exciting evening. Were the Kingsmen the only group on the program that night? I have to be honest with you, I don't recall. Okay. I do not remember. But uh, no doubt about it, that album became <clears throat> a uh, standard setter uh, for Southern gospel music. Of course, most people generally recognize the Kingsmen in the world of gospel music, the Kingsman as the masters of the live album. They had so many great ones. Uh, Traveling Home, obviously, a, a benchmark. But uh, let's let's go backwards now. Right. Let, let's go back to your earliest days in Southern gospel music. Most people first got acquainted with you uh, from a group up north called the Keystone Quartet. That's exactly right. And um, can I back up just a minute? Sure. As a young man, I was in Bible college uh, in Green Lane, Pennsylvania, and I had a good friend. His name was Eddie Spuler. He went on to become a missionary, 
And as a matter of fact, he lost his life on the mission field, but mm. he was a terrific friend. Well, he invited me to go to his home in Philadelphia, which was uh, 45 minutes, you know. He said, let's go to my house for the weekend. My mom will make us some pasta, you know, and we'll have a, some, you know, good time. And which we did. And Saturday night, we were trying to find something to do. And he said, let's go down to town hall. There's a quartet concert. Well, I'm from New York City. So I thought maybe he was talking about Frankie Valley or something like that, you know. But it was a quartet concert. And I remember that night to this day, the uh, the quartets were the Eastman Quartet, the uh, Couriers Quartet, the Weatherford Quartet, and the Blackwood Brothers. Uh, that's a fair lineup. Yeah, pretty pretty fair. Yeah. Well, I spent all my life learning how to play the piano, but I still at this point didn't know my purpose in life. Well, Danny, I sat there in that whole concert with my mouth open, and that moment in time is when I knew what, what my calling was right there. And it wasn't long after that that uh, there was a group there, the Keystone Quartet, and then I, that's how I got to join the Keystone Quartet. And I left college to go full time with the Keystone Quartet. Right, and of course now in that group there were there were a few uh, fairly uh, good singers. Well, in that they group eventually too. made it. They they, they they got there eventually. Yeah. And, uh, go ahead and share with our folks who who else was in that group. Well, it was um, at one point it was Joe Bonzel with the Oak Ridge Boys now, and Richard Sturbin, who's also with the Oak Ridge Boys, and Dave Will of Imperials fame, and myself. That was a quartet at one time. Right. That's not your average church. Uh, that's not your average Sunday morning church quartet right there. That was an excellent quartet. Yes, it would be. Very I mean, good quartet. A lot of talent yeah. in that lineup right yeah. there. And then from there, you went to the Rebels. Yeah. I left there, and, um, and um, we joined the Rebels, moved to Florida. And I wasn't with the Rebels that long. I think we did one or two albums with the Rebels. And uh, I got a call from Coy Cook. He said he was forming a new group under the auspices of J.G. Whitfield. Mm-hmm. And would I care to be the piano player? So I took the job. And, and it was uh, uh, Coy Cook and the Senators. Coy Cook and the Senators. And uh, that was that was also an excellent group. You know, I just thinking about it, I... And in my entire career, I've never been with a bad group. No. no <laughs> Locally, I, I'm speaking, you know. Right. Yeah. And... Um, I stayed with Coy Cook for a while, and then uh, we were singing at the War Memorial in Nashville, and the Stamps were also on the program. Kenny Hicks was a bass player for the Rebels during my tenure there, and now he was a bass player for the Stamps. He was J.D.'s nephew. He came to me. He said, Nick, J.D.'s going to offer you a job tonight. And I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be terrific, you know. (laughs) Well, the the long story short is he did. He offered me a job, and I accepted the job. But then I had to turn in my notice to Coy. I had to be fair with him, you know. Right. So we had already been on the road for like almost two weeks with the senators. And I accepted the job with the stamps that night in Nashville. And I worked out another two weeks with the senators and then got on a plane and flew to California and joined the Stamps in California. Mm-hmm. So I was gone from the house for like five weeks. Oh, my. It was awful. <laughs> I left I left home as a senator, and I came back as a Stamp. 
well, <laughs> not everybody can say that. <laughs> and then uh, after the stamps, you were off the road for a little while, and then uh, then you got a job with the Kingsman in uh, somewhat of an unusual way. You just almost backed into that one, didn't you? Yeah, I was at the time I was um, working with Don Baldwin in Mechanicsburg managing the studio, and he said that um, Nick the Kingsman are having a concert in Asheville, and uh, I'd like to go. Would you want to ride with me? So I said, well, sure. So we took off, and we attended that concert. And that night, Eldridge offered me a job playing for the Kingsman. And um, once again, I took the job. I've, I've always <clears throat> always felt like if a door opened, it, you know, I felt like it was the Lord's leading. How long were you with the Kingsman? Uh, about six years, five or six years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So what, what finally uh, took Nick Bruno off the road? Well, here's the truth of it. While I was with the Kingsman, we were a full-time group, of course, but we normally left home on Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was also doing a lot of producing at the time. There were several studios in that area in, uh, one in Kingsport, one in um, Charlotte, different places, Greenville, Mark V. And I was on high call to do a lot of sessions. <clears throat> and it wasn't unusual for me to get home off the road late on a Sunday or early Monday morning and come home and have a shower and have, have some breakfast and take off and go play sessions. <clears throat> and then get back. In time to get on the bus, grab a shirt, and take off for the weekend. Well, that that story didn't last real long. You know, right. I finally realized that I, I was at a point where one or the other had to go. I, I couldn't continue to do that. And I really enjoyed producing. And I felt like I'd served my time on the road as a faithful soldier, you know, so to right. speak. And so they offered me a job at Mark V Studio. And I took the job at Mark V. And that's how my so-called producing career began. And it wasn't long after that that I did Beulah Land for Squire. Mm-hmm. Speaking of your producing years, uh, share with our listeners uh, some of the more, I guess you would say, more memorable uh, recordings that you've been a part of during that time. Well, obviously, as I've already said, uh, Beulah Land. Right. We we recorded that in Asheville, and um, I don't want to sound precocious or anything, but I I really knew from the moment we started recording that song that it it was going to be a a pretty pretty big song. Right. You know? And still is. Yeah, and I had no idea at the magnitude of it, mm-hmm. but I knew that it was a hit. I really I really did know it was a hit. And um, I've done a few pretty decent songs. I did uh, Look For Me at Jesus' Feet with the Booth Brothers. And um, I can't really recall them all now. I did Beulah Land. I did Excuses for the Kingsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget how many. I, I think I've had six or seven number ones. Yeah. If, if you go look through the, the history of Southern gospel music, you, you'll find Nick Bruno's name listed many, many times, and either as a, a musician or a producer or arranger or whatever. But, you know, now he's, <clears throat> I, I guess the best thing to say about Nick Bruno is he's, he's one of those treasures of gospel music that has, has so much 
experience both on the road, both in a studio. He, he's, he's experienced all aspects of Southern gospel music. Uh, so when we come back, I'm going to ask you a million-dollar question. Oh, boy. You're listening to Danny's Diary, a podcast powered by Singing News Magazine. And, of course, Singing News Magazine is one of the best ways to keep up with everything that's going on in the world of Southern gospel music. To subscribe, simply call 800-527-5226 or visit singingnews.com, and you will find all of the information right there. Our guest today on Danny's Diary is Nick Bruno and Nick, as promised, here is that million-dollar question. All right, let me have it. What does gospel music need today? Gospel music, um, that's a good question. That's an excellent question. Uh, Gospel music needs to go back to uh, a time where we actually paid attention to what we were doing. I know that sounds like a silly answer, but let me illustrate. I think that today's gospel music, while it's all excellent, we have some terrific talent in our industry today, but there was a time when people cared more. They they cared more about their attire. They cared more about their, their singing. And some of the technology that we have today in recording and, and performance I think has watered down the desire for musicians and singers to improve. I think I think some, not everyone, but I think there are some today, they don't have that burn to get better. I mean, back in the day, we literally rehearsed for hours just working on the blend of the quartet. We'd let the baritone get a little bit louder and see what that did. Let the lead singer get a little bit louder. Raise the pitch on the baritone a little bit. Just sharp it just a little and see what that does to the blend. When you start playing around with things like that, it's an amazing thing. You start hearing overtones. It's like, like on a violin. You can play a note on a violin and the violinist can play a note, but you can hear it two octaves higher. Mm -hmm. That kind of care and intensity for the craft. Now, you know, we're not talking about ministry or entertainment or that aspect of it. Just for the craft, the craft of singing and performing Southern gospel music, I think there are some artists that have lost the burn to get it right. Okay. Let's go back to your time with the Stamps. Um, you were there during uh, part of their time when they were traveling with Elvis. Yeah. And uh, I think, actually, you're probably the third or fourth guest on the podcast who's actually uh, has on the resume that you were part of the Elvis Presley show in, in some form or another. Uh, so I'm going to ask you the same question that I've asked all the other ones. Uh, what was it like to be a part of what the world uh, remembers as one of the greatest entertainers? What, what, what did you take away from your time with the Elvis Presley Show? Um, at first, it was overwhelming, you know, the, to uh, to begin um, 
I'll tell you a quick story. Okay. We were all, uh, the first first time ever, we were all in the small um, auditorium at the Las Vegas Hilton. We were using it as a rehearsal hall. Musicians, a full orchestra, they're all standing over there. They're all bing, 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 dong, dong, tuning, pinking, you know. And we're just sitting in a corner there waiting, didn't know what to expect or anything. And suddenly, the elevator opened onto the stage. And Elvis Presley came walking out with four men in black and came walking straight to us. (laughs) And I have to tell you, it took my breath away. I mean, it was like... This is Elvis thinking Presley right here, and he's coming over here, you know? Uh-huh. And he walked right over, and he shook everybody's hand. He knew all our names. Oh, Nick, how you doing? You know, it was amazing, amazing. And um, from then, you know, we he loved the stamps because of J.D. Right. And all he wanted to do was sing gospel music. That was it. So my time with him was spent performing gospel music that, that's what we did till the sun came up right all right uh as regular listeners of the podcast know we always take a segment during each podcast to throw out some names to get the first reaction of our guest and that's what we're going to do with mr nick bruno right now so be prepared here we go i just want your first reaction when i say the name jd sumner lowest bass singer in the world Okay, that's that's duly noted. Uh, Let's talk about um, Michael Booth. Michael Booth is a um, tremendously talented individual who doesn't really know how talented he is. Well, he'll appreciate that. Yeah. Squire Parsons. Squire Parsons, one of the greatest men on the face of the earth. That is a very common theme when we've used that name. We've heard that over and over and over again. Uh, let's 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 go. Uh, let's go back to some of your earlier days. Uh, uh, Joe Bonzel of the Oak Ridge Boys. Joe Bonzel, um, wild as a buck. <laughs> and Troy Peach is in the floor over there right now. Okay. Uh, and one final name. Let's uh, let's talk about. Uh, uh, here's a man that both of us knew really well, Eldridge Fox. Eldridge Fox, one of the kindest, sweetest, most gentle, best baritone singers to ever walk on a stage sing gospel music. And he, uh, one thing I remember about Eldridge, too, he was not afraid to admit that uh, there may be a better singer in his in his. Uh, in his group and he did not mind sharing that spotlight at all he he always pushed somebody else out front kind of like hamill did uh so what is nick bruno doing with his time these days well it's uh interesting that you asked me that i have um i'm still producing i'm still uh doing recording and the truth of the matter is i'm 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 at a stage right now where i'm doing a lot of teaching mentoring you know Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really would like to find two or three young groups uh, that I could kind of take under my wing and mentor and develop into something more than what they are. Um, 
if they're out there, I'd like to I'd like to find them. Well, the gauntlet has been thrown down, and uh, you could do worse than spending time with Nick Bruno. You really could, uh, Nick. Let's uh, let, let's go back and talk about a book that you wrote uh, a few years ago that uh, has a little bit uh, of the ins and outs of of gospel music, and and actually kind of covers a lot of the things we you just uh, alluded to there. Uh, mentoring, uh, mentoring uh, young groups, and uh, the book is called "The Gospel Music Truth." The Gospel Music Truth, and uh, it, it's a very fascinating read. If you if you have anything at all to do with gospel music, whether it's just a casual interest or if you're on the uh, uh, the business side of it, if you will, it, it is something that's well worth your time. And of course, they're still available. You can contact Nick; he'll tell you how to do that in a few moments. But uh, give us a a little of example of some of the things that someone could expect if they picked up a copy of that book. Well, they could learn a lot about recording, um, the good things and the bad things to do about recording. Uh, they could learn about rehearsing. Uh, they could learn about arranging. They could learn about how to find songs. They could learn how to build a program. Many artists today don't have a clue how to build a program. You know, they go out and sing seven songs and go home, you know. But there is a real art to walking on a platform or a stage and developing a program until it has a, a pinnacle to it, a climax. And so I teach that. Uh, they could learn how to present themselves on stage. They could learn how to dress properly for the industry and the music that we perform. Um, that's just a sample Right. And I've read the book. It's well worth your time to, to read that, like I said, regardless of your level of interest in gospel music. And uh, I, this thought went through my mind a few moments ago when we were discussing uh, your time with the Stamps. Do you have a favorite road story that just automatically pops to your mind if someone asks you about your traveling days? Well, I could tell you my favorite story, but it... Um it would embarrass me. <laughs> well, okay. It's it's a, I'll I'll shorten it up pretty quick. Okay. Um, we were en route to California with the Kingsmen to work with um, Polly Grimes. You remember she mm -hmm. did a West Coast tours, and we got into a snowstorm somewhere out in Kansas or someplace like that, on what whatever that interstate is seventy or whatever. And so Eldridge made the executive decision to turn the bus around so we could drive back out of the storm and head south and go out on the southern route, which is what we did. Mm -hmm. But we never got out of the snowstorm because it was following us. So finally, we decided to just turn south. So we turned down a highway, and the exit was for Scott City, Kansas. And it was about six miles to Scott City. It took us almost two hours to get that six miles Radine was driving the bus, and I was standing in the bus well with a can opener, a big can opener. And about every 20 or 30 feet, I would jump off the bus and run in front of the bus and try to find the yellow line. That's how bad it was snowing. So we saw a, we saw a, a light up ahead that we assumed was a, 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 a pole light, you know. Uh -huh. And right at the last instant, I said, Radine, stop. And he stopped the bus. And I stepped off the bus onto a person's front porch. Oh, my. We had driven into the front yard, and that was their porch light. 
of all the miles that Troy Peach has driven, he said, I've not done that yet. <laughs> not done it yet. So did the folks come out of the house and want an explanation? Uh, I don't think they even knew that we did it. Okay. We, we backed out and headed on down south. Well, you know, if you're going to travel in gospel music, it doesn't take long before you have a, a travel story, that's for sure. Hey, how do people get in touch with Nick Bruno? Uh, Bruno Productions at Comcast.net. Bruno Productions at Comcast.net. All right, folks. The challenge has been issued. So, Nick, we appreciate you coming in today and being a guest on Danny's Diary. Uh, it's always great to have uh, people that, that the people such as Troy and myself look up to and as, as genuine legends of gospel music. Thank you for everything you've been a part of down through the years. Thank you for influencing us and, and providing us with such great music. Uh, Troy and I talked about this the other day. There's, there's something magical about those uh, old live albums like Traveling, uh, I mean, uh, like uh, Chattanooga Live and the songs on there, Traveling Home and so much more. And you were such a big, big part of that. So thank you uh, for your contributions to gospel music. Anything you want to do before you leave, sir? No, sir. I want to thank you all for, for what you're doing. This is a wonderful thing. Well, thank you. Our guest today has been Nick Bruno. And thank you for tuning in to Danny's Diary. Another episode will be on the way soon, so be on the lookout for that. Our engineer today has been Troy Peach. Music by Eli Fortner. I'm your host, Danny Jones. I'll see you next time.